Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for The Hunt. Welcome this evening's guest moderator, Eric Cohn from IndieWire, and tonight's guests, Mass Mickelson and Thomas Winterberg. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. P packed house. Great. Uh, They're screaming out there. They're I know, it's fabulous. wild. It's, it's an interesting movie to get this kind of reaction for, isn't it? It's not exactly a crowd pleaser. It's a very joyful uh, movie seen from a Danish perspective. And right? they just cut out all the laughs. It's a classical Danish comedy, and go and see it. So, the, the trailer doesn't go into too many details, but what we do get is that this is a story of a man who's sort of ostracized from his community for certain things. Um, it's not entirely an invention. It's not based on one true story, but my understanding is that you did draw from certain true incidents. So can you walk us through a little bit about how that came together? Yeah, well, unfortunately, this film is sort of the airplane version of what, what happens in real life. There's a great deal of horrifying cases uh, out there, and I was introduced to it by a, a psych psychiatrist all the way back in the year 2000. And uh, I read these cases and some of these files, and it, it appeared, as I said, horrifying to me, and also thrilling and fascinating. To have 12 different children 
giving a precise, exact testimony that all are in sync, describing the same basement, colors of the wall, where horrifying things should have been happening. Um, and then they go to the house to check the house, and there is no basement. It's a collective fantasy that has appeared somehow. That, that for, for me, was very fascinating and uh, intriguing, and I had to look into that. Well, and your films, The Celebration and Submarino, also deal with certain kinds of family drama and these family ties being tested in very specific ways based on past incidents. In this, this you sort of flip it, where it's the past incident didn't actually occur. So were you thinking at all about your experience telling those stories and, and how you wanted to sort of build as a, on, on what you've already done as a filmmaker in that sense? Well, yeah, this film was meant to be sort of the mirror or the antithesis, that's a difficult word, of, of the film I did before called Festen or The Celebration. Uh, that was the starting point of it. And then it grew to be its own and find its own way, and especially when Matt came on, on board, it find its own way of being. But uh, it was definitely meant to be a reaction to, to the film I did 13 years ago, yeah. So Mads, I want to talk to you about this character because it's it's a very interesting contrast to what you have often done. Uh, in some ways, it's very much a paradox. I mean, you are a handsome movie star of sorts, and we've seen you play a romantic. <laughs> I did that for them. <laughs> see a movie like A Royal Affair, and that's a very specific kind of character. But then you see, you know, you play bad guys like in the Bond film, and that's a different sort of end of the spectrum. And this one, it's, you're playing a very fragile victim. So was this a conscious decision to kind of play against type, or were there other aspects of it that drew you to the role? Well, the, the primary aspect of, of wanting to make this film was that uh, I wanted to work with Thomas. And uh, then when he presented the script to me, it was, uh, was beautiful, it was heartbreaking, and it was... Uh, a very frustrating read. Uh, I do believe that back home where I come from, a small country called Denmark, I, I have played other things than a one-eyed villain. Uh, so, know, there's so like three, it's, it's three or four roles where, where you just have one eye. Yeah. Right? It's starting to be uh, a thing. I have no idea why. Uh, but I've also been driving a car in numerous films, and so nobody mentions that. Uh, so, but uh, no, I mean, back home I have done not this character, but obviously I've been playing a variety of things, and uh, probably because of the funny accent, I'm playing the bad guy over here. <laughs> uh, but the, the reason to say yes to this film what it was, it was beautiful. It was heartbreaking, and I thought it, there was a potential in there that was uh, outstanding, and I'm, I was sure that Thomas would make a fantastic film. When Thomas ta talked about some of the research that he did, was there anything that you did on your part in terms of engaging with people who had gone through similar sort of experiences before? No, I, I would say this is not, the man is not a case. He, he's not the case. This is a man who's like you and me and from scratch, he's, he's experiencing these awful events. So I thought it would be much more interesting just to see what happened to me, um, like, like a blind sheet, like a clean sheet. Uh, obviously, I could I could have asked people who has been through an event like that, but but it it wouldn't be our film, and the man has to be as innocent and as naive as as you and me. 
Thomas, how do you coach a performance like this? Because so much of it is internalized for a large stretch of the film. This isn't really a spoiler, but you, you don't get a big moment where you just sort of tell everybody, no, seriously, I didn't do this. You know, I mean, it's like you don't know quite how to express the problem. And that sounds like an interesting sort of directing challenge because so much of it is his face. Well, we decided to not let him say that because it would sound fake. He would seem even more guilty. If you start claiming you're innocent and start screaming that, then how does that sound? Um, uh, we did a lot of work together. We did change the character quite a bit. Uh, in the script, to begin with, he was a blacksmith, tough, tough guy, man of few words, a, a real hunter type. And you know, when Matt came on board, he's so sexy and so manly already. So. <laughs> So I felt we, we, we can afford making him a teacher and, and, give, and give him some weird glasses and, and, uh, and humble him a bit. And so we made him uh, more of a Scandinavian softie, right? And, um, which I found much more interesting and actually I'm glad we did because I think Matt gave a very touching portray of that character. So, um, but we worked a lot together. We worked intensely together. We prepare a lot. Matt asks a lot of questions day and night, uh, and it was very intense, and uh, I really, really uh, loved that process. What sort of questions did you have? Well, uh, obviously, you guys have not seen the film, maybe some of you have, but I mean, there is uh, there's one there, there's two, I like it. And uh, we're gonna go to a clip in a again. second to flesh uh, things but, out. But obviously, there are, there, the questions was, um, when you see the film, and you will, uh, there is a frustration. All of your friends will. <laughs> There's a frustration attached to that. It's like, when does he move into action? And when does he stand up for himself? And how does he stand up for himself? Uh, and, and those questions we had to turn around numerous times. And, and it turned out that he is standing up a lot of times, but in a civilized manner. And, and the frustration from the audience and from me as a reader was that I wanted something else. I wanted that, as you said, that fury. I wanted it to explode, but it's not realistic. You wouldn't do that. He is confronting the case in a civilized manner right away. The woman who works in the kindergarten, his best friend, but the doors are slamming right in his face and he's standing outside on the street in a Kafka world. Uh, uh, and so, so we decided that we will wait and wait. But those were the questions we were addressing constantly. When is it happening and how? Well, and the reason why I'm asking you this now about you know, such detailed questions about the performance is because we're going to look at a clip, and while people haven't seen the film, I think just from isolating certain pieces of it, you could see in the texture of the film the way that this thinking plays out. So can we take a look at the first clip, please? Ja, 
Ja, så er det ude. Kom. Afsted med dig. Du skal ikke uh, komme her. Jeg må da ikke slå. Du skal ikke være her mere. Du må da ikke slå på det. Jeg siger det stille og roligt. Du kan ikke slå på den måde der. Du, er nødt du skal til... ud nu. Du skal ikke bare stå og slå på den måde. Ja. Det er normalt. Det er normalt. Jeg kan godt se. Ja, det er godt klart. Kom nu. Jeg har lov til at få min ting. Så er det ud. Jeg har ikke gjort noget. Jeg har lov til at få min ting. Okay. Ah! 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 Kom ud herfra. Kom ud herfra. Kom ud herfra. Kom ud herfra. Kom ud Kom ud herfra. Kom ud herfra. Kom ud shouldn't have gone for the pork chops. <laughs> Don't ever do that. That's a real lesson. So backstage, you were referring to the scene as the one where I get my ass kicked. Uh, I'm guessing you didn't have a stunt double. No, uh, that was me. Uh, but the scene does continue a little, and, and I, well, go and see it. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, this is uh, one of the moments there where He's obviously isolated now at this point, and he's, uh, as I said before, he's trying to do it in a civilized manner, but one of his bigger flaws as a character is that he's a stubborn man. He does insist that he belongs to the community, and nobody can stop him, and this is the way he does it, and he's not, <laughs> he's not really winning it. So, I mean, how many takes do you go through before something like this just tires you out? Well, uh, well, I'm happy with one take. <laughs> I, I enjoyed doing a couple of them. No, it wasn't too many. No, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. The little nuances comes in and little details, so we, we figure out, oh, we, let's do it again, and we can do it better in this way. And uh, so, so we, when it's dealing with a kind of stunt, uh, you are bound to hurt yourself constantly. It doesn't matter how good you are at it. You will get bruised up. And so we only have maybe 10, 12 in us. So was that real blood? Was it real blood, that one? <laughs> no, that was fake. Uh, I want to go back to what you just mentioned before about the community. It doesn't make the community look too friendly. Um, and I'm wondering if there are, there's a bigger idea here in terms of you know, you look at a film like The Celebration, that's also about a community, the sort of family community, and this is that on a larger scale. And in neither case, it, that sort of apparatus comes across looking very good. So do you have a sort of anarchistic bent in that regard? I mean, is this movie really about why these places are bad for people? Well, actually, we try to create a community that is very likable in the beginning of the film. Uh, sort of as in a fairy tale, here's some good, innocent, warm, loving people. And then this trace of this glass splitter falls into this society and, and evil spreads like a virus. And uh, throughout this film, I like these people. Maybe not the butcher here, but, but, 
but but all of his friends, I maintain sympathy for them. Uh, that's the whole idea of it, because it's a lie that comes between them and not just evil human beings. I've always been fascinated by families and gatherings and maybe because I grew up in a very strange kind of family myself. I grew up in a, in a hippie commune uh, back in, uh, you know, surrounded by genitals back in the, <laughs> in, in, in the 70s. And uh, it was great fun and I really enjoyed that. And I'm sort of always coming back to that. And, and you'll see genitals in the opening of this film as well, actually. I think we also have to remember that th this guy is not accused of robbing a bank. If that was the case, I'm sure that the butcher would pat my shoulder and give me a beer. It, it is He'd make you buy the beer. But probably. But the thing is that these are kids. We're, we're dealing with kids. So my character is with his civilized manners trying to, to, to fight emotions, and it's a battle he's, he's bound to lose. And if this butcher is 100% sure that, that I am a child molester, I don't know. A lot of people would approve what he did, you know. That, that is a reaction that is not civilized, but it happens, right? So it's because we're dealing with a subject so fragile that the brain just shuts off. There is no rational side anymore, and, and it becomes all emotion. And for that reason, it does look from that clip as if it's a, a, a very hostile community. But as Thomas said, it's not. Uh, everybody else, my friend, uh, his wife, everybody else, we understand why they react like they react. Well, but the one element in that equation that doesn't quite understand on that level is, of course, the children. Uh, how much did the child actors in this film understand about what was going on in the plot of the film? Well, obviously, there was things we, we, we couldn't tell her. She was seven years old at that time. So we told her pretty much everything except anything sexual. We didn't want to let her into that room. She was too young to, to know about stuff like that. She knew there was a conflict. She knew she'd been lying. She knew that some people hated her. So to understand all the aggression towards her in, in, on the set. But she also knew that this was a kind of a game she was playing and, and it was not for real. And she totally enjoyed doing it. And, and because she was so mind-blowingly good, she enjoyed every, every day at work. You'd see a film crew uh, into spontaneous applause when, when she'd been on because she was really a talent. And, and uh, no, so, so I, th I think it was a joyride for her. And Matt, for you, I mean, sharing scenes with somebody like this, I mean, there, there are moments where, you know, you have to be very dramatically engaged with this young person you know, was there, was there any kind of restraint in that regard? Were you worried about traumatizing this person? No, not at all. Uh, I spent a lot of time with her, like Thomas did. Obviously, they spent a different kind of quality time, uh, like uh, the tutor and, and the kid, and I spent time like a friend or a father. So we got as close as we could get in those weeks, so she felt extremely comfortable being around me. And for that reason, we could uh, go in and play these characters. And, and what she was extremely good at was not necessarily acting, but reacting. She would react to everything I did. So if I just gave up my plans and started following her, uh, we were bound to make a great scene because she was so natural and, and, and just went for it. So I want to bring up another clip here in just a minute. But before I do that, can you talk a little bit about the writing process? Uh, it's one thing to see the movie 
in, in these, and it's a very visceral sort of experience, and it goes from one moment to the next, with a very f sort of fluid, dramatic feel. But on the page, you don't necessarily get that same kind of engagement. So how do you know when you're writing these sort of scenes that they're going to have that kind of punch to them? Well, when you write something, that it's always suggestions for things, and then you go out and you keep the exploration going. You always keep open to what you have around you or suggestions from your actors. Uh, but we did work a very long time on the script and did a very thorough work with it. And we made some decisions about it. We said, this is not a, a typical case story. That means no courtrooms, no police. There, was, there is one scene with police, but you know, no shootouts, no lawyers. This is about human beings and how they, how they interact in a situation like this. Um, and then we mapped it out from there. Um, but it was a you know, long, genuine process of constantly refining it and constantly trying to make the moments more and more interesting, less, less and less logical, but more and more humane, I guess. So I, I guess thing. also a, a good test for a script is to give it to a 40, 70-year-old man and, and, and when he starts crying on page 60, it's working. <laughs> And, and that's how it worked. It was, it was a breathtaking thing. It was just um, tremendous. Of course, to know why you were crying at page 60, they'd have to go see the movie and wait till the first hour passes. So. That was the plan. Yeah. Good one. So let's watch that clip. Lucas, I call her a little girl, and she lives, and she has never seen it. So why does she live now? Ja, det ved jeg ikke hvorfor. Men øh, det går hun altså. Lukas, hvor sødt. Det er jo, jeg har, ikke, jeg har ikke været din datter. Tror du på, hvad jeg siger, eller tror du ikke på det? Jeg ved ikke. Det er jo, jeg har ikke været din datter. Tror du for helvede, at jeg ikke på? Jeg ved det ikke, Lukas. Vil du være sød og svare, hvad har jeg gjort? Forsvind ud herfra. Hvad er det, du forestiller dig er sket? Må jeg få et svar, hvad har hun fortalt dig? Ved du hvad? Ud! Jeg gider ikke sidde her og diskutere med dig. Forsvind herfra! Svind, mand. Kræftede ikke sidde her i vores sofa, mand, i vores hus. Jeg vil aldrig nogensinde mere have, at du kommer her. Kræftede med pikken af dig, mand. Ud med dig! Hey, Lukas. Sindssygt eller hvad? Hvis du har rørt min lille datter, så får du en kugle. I panden. Og det tror du har, for det siger hun jo ikke. Er du ude på at smadre mit liv? Er du ude på at smadre mit liv eller det? Kom her. Kig på mig. Kig på mig. Kig på mig. Kom. Hvad skal du lave dig til? Er du klar? Hej, Lukas. Klar. Kom ind på værelsen, venner. 
So I have to ask, what was the mood like on set? What was the mood? Great. I, I, I believe it's, that. It's actually, like that day, this, this friend of mine, he gave me a solid dead arm just for fun on that day. <laughs> that was the mood. But listen, um, if you do something that you like and that works and you feel that the drama works in front of you, you're in a good mood. The bad mood comes of making bad movies. Um, and I totally felt that I was in a, in a very good place here with some of the best actors I could get. This little kid who just acted brilliantly and, and, and great and I think potentially important drama. So the mood was good. We were busy, uh, struggling as you always do on a film set, but, but it was uh, a cheerful experience. Mads, how would you say it would compare it to other, I mean, other films that you've done in terms of just, you know, the ease of working with the filmmaker and knowing that you're on the right track? Did you feel like what, you, what made you cry on page 60 was happening there and on the spot? Yeah. Uh, I think I, I believe I was actually crying on page 53 when we shouted. <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, it was, as Thomas said, wh when you feel it's working, it doesn't matter how tough a scene looks or how tough emotionally the, the scene is about, uh, it, it makes you feel good. Uh, obviously, the, these days are long. We are dealing with a very heavy subject, and it's, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes into the film, we're going into a dark place. So, so we spend a lot of time there, uh, but we didn't mind. We were sure we were on the right track. So I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other things that you guys do in your careers before we go to an audience Q&A. You're talking about sort of the experience on set as, as being very specific to the project that you're working on. Most recently, I think people have gotten a totally new side of you watching you on Hannibal which is a show that's it's really ta taken off in a very short period of time. But it's also a character that's incredibly familiar to audiences. So can you tell us a little bit about that sort of challenge, where people are already bringing a certain amount of understanding of who they're watching before they even see you perform? Well, I, I hesitated a lot before I said yes. Obviously, it's, it's kind of like suicide to step into the shoes of Anthony Hopkins when he's already done it to perfection, right? But Brian Fuller, who is the creative writer and producer on it, he uh, convinced me by pitching the show for three hours, I guess. Uh, he, was, he was in season 19 at a certain point. Um, and he's very energetic. And, and this is taking place before Hannibal is captured, uh, meaning that he has to be uh, normalized to a degree. He has to be able to make friends. He has to be friendly. Uh, so that gave us an opportunity to give life to some other scenes that we have seen in the previous films. Uh, for that reason, I thought it was an interesting challenge. If I just went in there and tried to copy Anthony Hopkins, I, I would be a solid idiot. Well, and it's no secret that TV isn't going through this remarkable state of evolution. Does it feel different to work on a show than it does to do, to do film as an actor? A show is different in the way that uh, in a script like this, we know from A to Z where we want to go, and we can work in those frames we don't necessarily know what the next episode is going to bring us, right? Uh, it doesn't matter that much for my character Hannibal because he's uh, open to life, he's very curious, and every day is a new opportunity. Uh, but, but in general, it's nice to know if you want to put your little energies and make your little adjustments where you're going. So that is a different animal, and obviously the speed is different. 
I don't mind that necessarily, but uh, but it's nice to to have a, a job that lasts more than two months. <laughs> so, Thomas, would you consider working on television, or is film your media, your preferred medium still? No, I think it's very interesting what what television goes through. I've always wanted to when, when you've invented a group of people, a family, such as in the celebration. I remember back then I felt it was a pity to leave them already after two months. I wanted to spend more time with them. I felt the same way we did the hunt. We've built these characters, these these arcs, and uh, this life around these people, and it would be wonderful to continue exploring la that. Um, I guess I guess it's modern time novel where things can unfold, and I find that very attractive. The reason I ask you is because you've always been sort of involved in a state of narrative invention. Your role in the dogma movement, which you basically invented, is something that, I'm sorry, we have to talk about a little bit before we take questions. It's just, it's going to haunt you forever. But uh, for those of you who don't know about the Dogma 95 Manifesto, look it up. It's a fascinating sort of experiment that a lot of filmmakers went through, and Thomas basically invented it, and it produced a lot of interesting work, including Celebration and Julian Donkey Boy and some other interesting films. And t today, when digital film is in a totally different state, you know, it was very fresh then. Does, does that concept still appeal to you in some fashion? Does dogma still sort of trickle into the way that you make movies and tell stories? Well, dogma was back in 98, so many of you were, were not born yet. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, uh, and. And back then, we, we tried to make sort of a um, revolt against conventions in filmmaking. We tried to undress the typical classic filmmaking uh, by making it handheld and with no music and no added props. And we had this set of rules for that sort of stripped down the film to, to something very bare. Um, there was a, an enormous amount of risk connected to it. It was a big challenge. and. When it then became a big success in 98 in Cannes, it was a huge success, then it suddenly became fashion. Uh, and overnight, it was no longer uh, a revolt against the conventions of filmmaking, it became its own convention. And uh, therefore, it was time to move on and try to explore something else, I guess, for all of us. But it was a very powerful moment, and I was, I'm very proud of it. And, I, and I'm looking back at it with some, a great deal of longing because it was great. You got to invent a new movement, new manifesto. Well, it's not just something you do. It's a, it's a, it's a thing in time that, that is being called for. And it was the right time and the right place uh, back then. All right, so let's take some questions from the audience. Um, I've seen the film all the way through, and I just wanted to say that like, when I was watching it, you know, obviously it mostly focuses on Lucas and the way he's being really kind of dehumanized and isolated by the community. And you mentioned it earlier how it's kind of understandable because I was thinking the whole time, wow, this is horrible. Wow, he's going through so much. But sort of how else do you want people to react when you're being accused of molesting a child? So I guess, like, did that affect either of your interpretations of the character at all? As I said previously, when I read the script, uh, I said it was beautiful and heartbreaking, but it was also very frustrating to read, and probably 
like the same reason you come up with here, we cannot put our anger anywhere. We, what am I supposed to do? Hit the little girl, hit the, the woman in the kindergarten, hit my best friend. It's really difficult to get rid of your anger because you understand why they're doing what they're doing. The only problem is they can't see clearly. They're full of emotions, way too many emotions, right? So I think that was a, a, a powerful actor or powerful part of the film that was, that was very deliberate from Thomas and, and his co-writer Tobias that this is what we want to do. We don't want to have any baddies or any goodies. We want to see a community that lands in a situation that is so difficult to solve. Hi, this is actually uh, for Thomas. Um, children are usually a symbol of innocence, but obviously in this film, uh, the child Clara was kind of the source of the entire plot. I was just kind of wondering if you felt she was doing it innocently in a childlike way without true understanding, like a game of pretend that kind of went too far. Or do you think it's kind of just, you know, a human thing that she started this lie and then couldn't let it go immediately? Well, I find it very childlike and very innocent. She's fascinated with this man who wouldn't be, uh, um, in a sort of very innocent kind of way. She gets jealous and she gets angry, and she invents this little lie and does not know the consequence of that. I find that very important. I also find it important to say that one of the reasons we did a film like this is that in the real cases, the kids end up uh, as the victims again. A girl like her grows up to believe that something actually happened. She is being interrogated over and over again. Things are being suggested to her. Her mother is crying. Her father is getting into fights with someone. Uh, she's being sent to the gynecologist. There's this perfect illusion that this person is a victim. And as a child, you absorb these things and it becomes implanted in, in your memory. And you grow up with similar means as those who actually experienced it. So, so in a way, this film portrays another kind of violation of, of the children that we just have to deal with somehow. Uh, yeah. Hi, um, this question is also for Thomas, no offense. Um, <laughs> but it's about uh, Submarino. Uh, you said that um, it's one of your most personal movies. I just wanted to know why is that? Submarino is the film I did before this, which, is, which you also are gonna watch, all of you, <laughs> because you haven't done that, as I've seen in the numbers, but, but um, that is a film, well, after I did that, the film in 98 called The Celebration, um, I felt I had completed something and I had to go new ways and reinvent myself and start all over. And I did that for many years and it was a very, it was a fairy tale and I en enjoyed it. But it, uh, coming back to what I was to begin with and coming back to my way of movie making, uh, that I did with Submarino, it was sort of a return to how I usually made movies, and that's, that's why it became very personal for me. These two questions are from Mads, actually. For Casino Royale, what was your experience like, and what was Daniel Craig like from your point of view? And what is Kung Fu Panda gonna be, 3 going to be like from your perspective? It's best if you answer that as one question. I can. Uh, uh, 
Well, Kung Fu Panda is going to be awesome, I hope. I haven't seen anything yet, uh, but uh, it, it's pandas and then they know Kung Fu, so that's cool. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, Casino Royale was a great experience. I mean, I, I come from a small country, as do we both, and for me, all of a sudden, I ended up in a, this enormous set where I didn't have to say good morning to 20 people, but 500 people. But uh, we tried to make it as small and intimate as fast as we could, so it became this little group who were acting and, 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 uh, and discussing like we do back home. And Daniel Craig was an amazing guy. He was obviously under a lot of pressure, your new bond, uh, but he stayed focused, and, and uh, I'm just really proud of being part of that one. This question is for Mads. Um, you have have a history of playing some very dark roles just coming over to the US. How do you get into the mindset of those roles? What is your acting process to like get into the mindset of these very dark places? Uh, like like the, the ones over here or, or the ones we're looking at right here? Well, I mean, for some of the characters, the dark places we see is not a necessarily a dark place. If we talk about Hannibal, that is definitely not a dark place he's going. He's going to a very bright place. <laughs> he's one of the most happy characters I've ever played, I, to be honest. He, he, he will go home and whistle every day. So obviously the character is not going to a dark place. Uh, and, and in this case, uh, well, I didn't need that much preparation. The, uh, the circumstances just takes me in there, obviously. If, if somebody spits in your face and nobody wants to talk to you, you don't have to prepare for that. You feel kind of isolated. And, and uh, we made sure that everybody spit in my face when I came in the morning. <laughs> no, obviously not. But, uh, but, but it, it becomes that kind of um, imagination for everyone that, that, that I'm over there focusing and, and they will stay there and then we start the scene. Uh, unless we're in the beginning of the film where we're all friends. So, so sometimes when a film is well written, it will pull you in there and your preparation is, 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 is not as, as big. Hi, so I think a lot of us are also fans of Hannibal. Um, so I was wondering, do you see Hannibal as a bad guy? You kind of went into this little and is the food you're eating actually delicious? <laughs> well, so food is very delicious. Uh, you can get two versions. The, the one we're serving without the human flesh, of course. Uh, and then you can get a, a, a pasta variation if you're a vegetarian. I'm never choosing that one. I, I, I do like the meat version, and it's really delicious. Uh, well, Hannibal, of course, doesn't see himself as a monster. Uh, and. Uh, and, it, and I, I kind of like him, I'm sorry to say it, I kind of like the character. But if, if I pull back a little and look at him, I would say he is uh, the, the pure definition of the fallen angel. He is the Satan. He's not a psychopath. He doesn't have a tormented childhood. He didn't, didn't suffer from uh, abuse or a drug addict mom. Uh, but he just sees the beauty of death. He sees uh, the beauty of life is on the threshold to death. And that is a very opposite way of looking at life than the rest of us. Thank you. Um, for Mr. Mikkelsen, I just wanted to say I work at NBC Universal, and I'm very proud that my company has the good taste to put you in one of our shows. <laughs> and um, a lot of other people at the company feel the same way. So I didn't really have a question. I just wanted to let you know that. <laughs> But that was one of my favorite questions, so. 
thank you. I'm so grateful to get the mic. You guys have no idea. First of all, I'm seeing your movie tomorrow at 10 a.m. at Angelica Film Center. So, With your 6,000 closest friends. I'm very excited. Um, I'm Catherine Boyd. I'm one of the fan leaders for Hannibal. The main one is Christy Gay in Australia. And Moss, I know we're, we're here talking about the hunt. The only thing I wanted today was a shout out to the global fans who actually gave you season two. If you could shout out Thailand and Indonesia, they're actually all on Twitter, like just screaming at me right now. If you could just but that, please that. Do is that. amazing. Can they hear me now? Uh, but they can hear me later. Uh, well, They'll hear I, this later. I, I think we are all extremely grateful for doing another season. And I, I know that the fan group has been a tremendous uh, participant of making this happening. So um, we will buy you all a beer, depending on how many you are, of course. <laughs> Uh, so we are super grateful, and, and I will say thanks on behalf of the whole crew. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Greece also. Greece is very vocal. If I don't tell you that Greece loves you, I think they'll, they'll shoot me. So. Well, I love Greece. You need to get fans like that. Yayaskadai. Did I say it right? You did. It was beautiful, and that means I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So on that heartwarming note, the movie opens tomorrow. If you don't see it, you'll have some issues to talk to these guys about. So <laughs> we hope you check it out. Thanks, everybody. Thank you Thank so you much, guys.